The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Natural disasters impose terrible costs on individuals and communities. Fortunately, as research documents, civilization does not break down after disasters. Indeed, the human spirit survives, and communities typically recover from disasters. But how exactly do they recover? Is it because of extensive government assistance? Is it due to charity? Well, research has investigated this, and it turns out that the voluntary society, meaning philanthropy and the, the uh, business sector, play an outsized role in disaster recovery. Joining me on eConversations today to discuss research findings on recovery from disaster and how these lessons could have been applied to COVID-19, but largely were not, is Dr. Stephanie Halfley of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dr. Halfley studied economics with the good folks at the University of Northern, North Alabama before earning master's and doctoral degrees at George Mason University. She's a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and a director of academic and student programs at Mercatus. Dr. Halfley has also worked in disaster management at the U.S. Forest Service and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And she's the co-author of a book, uh, Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster. Well, welcome to eConversations, Stephanie. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. So you, you have a connection with Al Alabama because you went to uh, University of North Alabama where I think you studied with uh, like Keith Malone and, and, and uh, David Black and some other folks that I, I know. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, economics. If you Great, yeah, so I went to the University of North Alabama. Um, Hurricane Katrina happened while I was in school, so a little bit of the connection for disasters. But before that, um, my parents really wanted me to get a degree in business, so I thought I would do finance. And then I started taking these classes on economics and realized it was a little bit of the philosophy of business and also tackled some of these really interesting questions about policy. Uh, and my professors there uh, really sparked my interest. And so I got to uh, participate in a conference and help them on projects and in journals. And they kind of pushed me to think about grad school and, and, and figure it out further. My experience while I was there too, uh, got to some of these questions I'm really interested about of how people uh, are impacted by policy in the mm -hmm. real world and how do we kind of go about our lives in ways that can you know help us solve problems or or, or not uh, and being in the south when hurricane katrina hit which ages me because it's a while ago and, and undergrads might not remember um, but it was a big and devastating storm and people were displaced for a lot of time and you had a lot of questions about housing and recovery and if new orleans could recover and so Getting at those questions really kind of sparked my interest, both in Florence, Alabama, and then once I got to Mason as well. And the the what we'll be talking about is some of the research that was in, in your your book, um, but also some of the research that Mercatus has done over the years. 
Uh, I, I think you and I have both been involved with some of the Mercatus uh, research efforts with, with disaster. So it, it goes back to Hurricane Katrina and, and some hurricanes uh, prior to, to COVID. And you also did a, a research paper for Mercatus on recovery from COVID. So tell us a little bit about some of those, this research that we're going to be drawing on uh, the, the insights uh, on from today. Great, absolutely. So after Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, there was this serious question about such a devastating disaster in a city. Um, you know, could a city like that recover? And is it, you know, uh, being under sea level something that we should do? And and a lot of policy questions kind of immediately put into place. And in economics, we kind of see exactly what you said in the beginning, right? Like we as people in social societies face these devastating disasters or wars or other issues, and you would think that we couldn't recover from them, but we do. So how exactly does that work? And how does it work when it gets more complicated and the scale is, is more interesting? So um, Dr. Pete Becky at Mason saw this you know, really big disaster as a place where we could test out some of these ideas and think about what happens in society with businesses, communities, and government, and when everybody's impacted by a disaster um, in that setting, how does that work and how do they interact together? So that led to a lot of field work. Um, uh, for Hurricane Katrina, I was an undergrad, so I didn't get to go on any of the field work for Hurricane Katrina, but I went on for Hurricane Sandy afterwards and your experience with the tornadoes. And we got to really talk to people on the ground about what uh, you know, what was challenging, uh, who helped, uh, who made things a little bit harder, uh, and really learn a lot of the intricacies that happen when you're having to face, um, you know, a lot of challenges, a lot of costs, and make really complicated decisions. And so we got to explore what businesses and their role were, was, uh, how government policies impacted recovery, and then really getting the experience of people on the ground figuring out what to do and if they should you know, kind of revive their neighborhoods and, and build back their communities. And that kind of has started a long line of disaster recovery work, um, kind of exploring different types of disasters, uh, COVID being a prolonged, complicated um, disaster that we can get into quite a bit, but seeing you know, some of these ideas that we, we, we saw on the ground, are they similar in different places and in different contexts when things are so challenging. Well, great. So in, in your uh, paper on COVID, you have a, a line that I think really summarizes this very nicely. It says, commercial and social entrepreneurs are the key drivers of community re uh, disaster response and recovery. So remind us first off, before we get into the details of this, what exactly is an entrepreneur? And especially as, as we as economists, when we use that term, you know, what, what, are, what are we referring to? And then we can get into how you know, the entrepreneurs lead to recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so an entrepreneur in kind of economic terms is somebody who sees opportunities uh, and can take advantage of them in ways that uh, society will benefit from. So uh, it can be simple arbitrage where we might be able to see price differences of the same product in different places. And we know that if we can buy, uh, buy low and sell a little higher somewhere else, we can kind of make up those differences. It's how uh, price uh, equilibrizes over time uh, with supply and demand. But it's also this idea that when we have new needs in society, we can shift 
or repurpose products or, or different uses in order to satisfy the demands that we have. So in the context of disasters, we look at not just business uh, commercial entrepreneurs who are coming up with new products seeking, um, driven by profit and, um, you know, kind of uh, repurposed by loss if they, if they get it wrong, but also social entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs that are finding these gaps in opportunities to help with recovery. Let's get into some of the, the research and some of the, the findings to, to flesh out this idea of, of how it is that entrepreneurs are, are so important. Uh, so give us uh, some examples of, of what, you know, what, what we involve with an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs really helping in the disaster aftermath. Great. Yeah. So often an entrepreneur in this setting is going to have local knowledge about the needs of their fellow citizens and community members. They might have connections to different um, uh, networks that can that can be useful. And so in the setting after a disaster, what these particularly local entrepreneurs can do is provide needed goods and services uh, that might have been destroyed during the storm or supply chain has been caught up in the disruption of a disaster. Uh, they can reconnect social networks in order to facilitate information and get access to resources um, from outside their area or from other, uh, other aspects of their life. And they show this commitment that, that they're going to figure out a way to make the community come back together. Uh, and they, they do this through a variety of ways that can be utilized through government policy or different resources, but it's that local connection that can really kind of show people on the ground, people are here mm -hmm. uh, utilizing the resources we have to recover. You make the point about the, especially providing goods and services that, that would be required uh, by you know, disaster victims, because one of the things disasters do is like if the, it knocks the power out, it creates uh, needs or, or wants for things that we didn't necessarily need so badly before. And you know, we obviously saw that with, with COVID as well. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, hand sanitizers and, and then uh, masks became very much in, in demand, even though before they, they were just sort of like after thoughts and the things that were there but you never really worry about them too much and and so it's, it's very important to try to supply these goods and you know the, another thing that's true in, in disaster aftermath a lot of times especially if you're talking about a hurricane an, an area might be cut off or, or temporarily at least with uh, transportation bridges destroyed and, and you can't necessarily truck uh, new goods in there so it's it's very important in the Mercatus research, I think really sort of highlighted, communities have a lot of resource, a lot more hidden resources there than you might think. And, and getting those things that are already there in the community repurposed is a, is a huge part of, of how people respond, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I worked for FEMA, one of the things they wanted a lot of people to know is that they can't get there right away. So they often say you've got to be prepared for 48 hours after a disaster. Often it's more like two weeks before a lot of the logistics and, and services can kind of get up and running in these uh, kind of bigger operations. And so in that time period, uh, you know, people have to figure out what to do. Um, and so particularly after Hurricane Sandy, when we did research in the peninsula, the Rockaway Peninsula, you know, they were quite cut off, even though they were very close to New York City because of uh, damage to to bridges and, and um, 
flooding and other issues. And so community members had to figure out how to pull together food to immediately make sure every people could get fed. Uh, they found ways to share electricity or if people had generators, divvy it up for priorities within the community. Um, and entrepreneurs who know those people or who can be, you know, kind of see a profit opportunity to fill the gap can provide the particular necessities that need to happen. So um, after Hurricane Sandy, it was cold um, and, uh, you know, disconnected on the peninsula and people had, there were people that needed um, generators for particular medical devices or to refrigerate medicine. And so a community could kind of come together and figure out how do they share those resources uh, in a way that it might take a lot longer for somebody else to do, or, you know, you can't really have the Amazon delivery come the next day in the way that you would because supply chains are disrupted. So that ability to adjust really quickly, assess the resources that are there, even if they might be partially damaged and, and utilize them is really important in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane or a tornado. Uh, and then it gets more complicated with COVID where we have extended supply chain issues uh, that we have to work with too. But you know, th there were certainly some examples of that with, with COVID as well, and, and, and we can get into those. But I mean, the contrast of it is in the case of COVID, the, the approach that the government took was to give people a lot of money, but there's some limits to what you can accomplish by giving people, even if you could come in in, in that uh, you know far Rockaway Peninsula and somehow do a helicopter drop of money in, in, in the immediate afterwards, if people can have money, but they're not going to have anything they can purchase, and so there, there's a real limit to, to what you can actually accomplish by simply giving people money. You have to somehow address this need for goods, and there there were some examples of like distilleries and and restaurants who, who did things differently after uh, COVID and actually tried to address these shortages of, of much needed things. So tell us a little bit about that and how that fits into this larger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when COVID hit, we have a couple of things we can talk about. One, people started staying home more and kind of, uh, you know, demanding different types of goods and services than they did previously. And that was exacerbated or, or you know, kind of encouraged through uh, essential designations and stay at home orders uh, and, you know, kind of policy decisions on what types of businesses or activities could take place and, and what couldn't. Um, and so in that time period, it does take a while to adjust to those new demands and needs. Uh, and it also changes the way we get goods, right? If we, uh, we can't quite kind of fill the need that we need so quickly. Uh, and so immediately after uh, lockdown started, there was a shortage of toilet paper, particularly through normal means of getting in them. So grocery stores and, and things like that. Uh, but restaurants who had access to commercial toiletries had a surplus because they weren't, there were no customers going into their restaurants. And so if they could change their business model a little bit to all of a sudden provide these goods that they get from a different wholesaler, we could free up some of those resources to others, uh, still be able to provide some wages for people who wouldn't have had it for restaurants and kind of be able to adapt. And so you saw a kind of quick adaptation of you know, takeout and delivery services for food. Um, you could get cleaning supplies and toiletries and other kind of goods that you wouldn't normally buy from a restaurant because they had different 
access to different suppliers and wholesalers. And then you also had um, you know, people who could readjust their activities and what they were doing in new ways to fill new needs. So, you know, in addition to, you know, a lot of different companies, you know, starting to make hand sanitizer instead of liquor or uh, masks when they dealt with other clothing, we also had, um, you know, people who are now at home sewing masks so that we could get them out to people in need in between until we can fill those gaps. Uh, and a bunch of different ways that we do that. And what's interesting after a disaster is, you know, kind of normal market mechanisms are disrupted. We don't have the supply chains or we don't have access to everything that we had before. And so price signals are important um, in that space, but there's also a lot of room for just figuring it out as we go along. And so there's space for voluntary and, and charity work alongside businesses because you know, particularly with COVID, we needed a lot of things very quickly in order to be able to you know, continue functioning. And, and that requires effort from, from a variety of people. That that's what to do. The opposite is all of these activities need to go on because we're readjusting and adapting really quickly. And so, so how can we repurpose goods, I think is, is, is a really important way of thinking about in a disaster when something when things are so uncertain how do we adapt and adjust mm -hmm. the best well in these examples i think highlight another element because one of the uh, most prominent aspects of the policy was response was that policymakers in different states would declare certain businesses would be non-essential and they could be closed and and at one level, there's an economic critique that could be raised against that to say, like, well, how do you really know what businesses are essential and which aren't? Because that involves a lot of knowledge, detailed knowledge of supply chains, which typically is not going to be available. But the entrepreneurship angle of this is, uh, you know, provides another perspective on this idea of like who was essential and who wasn't, and who could be uh, providing needs. So tell us a little bit about how that, like, sort of like provide, you know. You know changes this whole idea of who's essential or who isn't and how could we know? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, an example I like to use from our uh, field work after Hurricane Sandy is uh, in the Rockaway Peninsula, we, we really um, examined an Orthodox Jewish population. Uh, they're used to providing goods to one another to help with their religious beliefs and, and make, uh, you know, compliance uh, more feasible in their community. Uh, but there was a woman who maybe was the person who knew a lot of information about their neighbors, you know, maybe was a little bit gossipy, uh, but her access to her network in her community allowed her to not only, you know, start up uh, a, a food distribution so that people had hot meals, but could also find out this person's home is damaged and these things, uh, you know, somebody needs something else. And she could kind of identify with her role as being, you know, sort of uh, uh, the nosy neighbor, all the needs that were needed. And so if we think about it that way to businesses, we have no idea which restaurant will be able to adapt quickly to provide uh, cleaning supplies. Uh, and so if we think of them as only interacting in person with food delivery, we're not thinking of their full capability that they can switch. Now, some, uh, you know, some businesses changed very quickly to entirely new processes. Uh, you had, um, you know, 
places that used to make vacuums now figuring out how to make ventilators. And maybe there's some, some ease in that, but they were quite literally changing like the sector and the type of business they were doing. And others were able to just adapt a little bit and use the resources they had on hand. But we wouldn't really know, we might know liquor distilleries could make hand sanitizer, but which ones could pivot really quickly and do that we can't really know ahead of time. And so that space to allow for that decision matters. And then with COVID in particular, when we thought we were gonna be in lockdown for two weeks, what's essential for two weeks is very different from being at home for six months. And so that aspect of adaptation of needs to be able to sustain um, uh, this new paradigm also requires a lot of adjustment. You mentioned a little bit, as I, I do want to highlight, because uh, you know, government does often provide like cash relief in, in other disasters, but the the philanthropy, private philanthropy, can do that as well too. And there is, you have some great examples uh, from uh, your your research on Sandy in your book, where you're talking about like you know people on the scene where you know had budgets that they were using to actually give out money. And tell us a little bit about how that worked and how you know how. Even if there's small amounts of money, it could be a, maybe a lot more effective than, than the government spending uh, billions or tr uh, trillions. Yeah, so a great idea of something that was in the community and they could adapt it for a new use was a small fund in the Orthodox Jewish community in the Rockway Peninsula uh, for families in their community that were dealing with the financial crisis. Uh, so there was a kind of bank account set up where community members could put some money aside and when somebody might um, have an issue paying their bills or they're more, having trouble with their mortgage, they could give them a small uh, amount of money to help get them through that time. And so it was a way that they kind of shared risk and ensured that their, their neighborhood could, could thrive in the financial crisis. So when Hurricane Sandy hit, they had a bank account and sort of an idea that there was this ability to give funds to those in need. And they were then able to use that with their broader religious community and get outside funding. And so this community assistance fund in Rockaway ended up raising like 30 million, like $3 million, so a large amount of money and distributed it very quickly uh, within about 18 months after the storm. And so they had different levels of assistance. So if you needed some cash to clean up your house, you could get that right away. If you needed money for some you know, more, more major repairs, you could uh, get an, an extra level of cash and then a, another process for if you had severe damage to your home. And the network of rabbis was able to kind of make sure that the people who needed the money had access to it and that it was being used in a good way. And it could also get through very quickly. And so they had this kind of small fund that they were able to help each other with at the financial crisis that then they could, you know, kind of scale up to deal with the issues of the devastation for Hurricane Sandy. And by the time FEMA and other places got there, there wasn't a lot of need for the assistance because there was this bottom up solution, which, which potentially allows FEMA and other places to then put their focus on somewhere else that might not have the same um, mechanisms in place to get private funding. No, you've talked, you had the term social entrepreneur in, in, in this uh, summary line. 
And I think you know one of the things that highlight that the, our disaster recovery uh, research highlighted, and you mentioned earlier, is, is the, the social signs of recovery, the assurance uh, of uh, you know the assurance to other people that we are going to recover, um, and, and sometimes even like the the, the uh, tremendous boost that things uh, that say like holding a church service again for the first time might uh, have on, on people's uh, psyches, and it's certainly one of the things we've seen. Sadly, it's like the COVID lockdowns have uh, have taken a big, big mental health toll uh, on our nation, and so, you know, I, I think there was a maybe a lost opportunity here that we could have relied you know, that we needed to rely more on this sort of social entrepreneurship to reestablish social networks or innovate and come up with new ways. And we saw some ex examples of it, but I mean, you know, there, there I think there is more potential there that we didn't take, really take advantage of. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with any disaster, the kind of psychic toll and mental toll that uh, happens is extreme. And then you add that with COVID extended isolation, the change of the way we do work and schooling. Um, and so there's a lot of room to figure out how we can provide those services um, and build up community in that space. So, you know, after a disaster, a church coming back quickly to show that they will have a congregation. Um, one is might thus be the spiritual thing you need to come back, but also you know that you have support who can help you figure out, you know, what's the right contractor to buy and and what, you know, do they have they gone through the experience before and they can kind of give you these kind of practical lessons as well. Um, you know, I do think we we saw it with COVID, but some of the the ways that we tackled how we interact with each other, I think, made it particularly hard and particularly hard for certain subsets of the population that might not have access uh, to the internet or kind of remote ways of interacting um, or just kind of changing the way that we provide social space and a place to, to vent or, or seek help when you need to. And so you did see, um, you know, you saw things like gyms switching to online um, you know, yoga studios or things like that in order to keep people engaged or, you know, church services that adapted to have, you know, uh, their service online or, you know, kind of drive through uh, uh, services where you could still partake in, in ceremonies or the, um, the building up of particular kind of pods and bubbles, particularly for students so that uh, the parents had a little bit of resources they could share amongst each other, but also you could have some socialization in a space where you, where you might not otherwise. And so I think we see those things happening despite some of the challenges that we face. And imagine what could happen if our policy implications had that idea in place to, to find the space for social entrepreneurship to flourish where we maybe can provide some some remedies to the mental and physical challenges that a disaster creates would be a different would would potentially be a very different story. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing that that did help a lot during uh, COVID was a lot of regulations were waived and following up on mental health. I and mean, one of the things that they allowed telehealth for 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 mental health. Uh, 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 purposes and, and other types of things. So tell us a little bit about the, the waiving of, of these regulations and, and how they helped. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in a time of disaster, we can think of a couple of things. One, are there regulations that just might slow access to services and goods and, and networks that we might have already? So something like really strict telehealth regulations, right? We can open that up so people have access um, to therapists and counselors that they might get when they're in school or at work and they, they don't get anymore when they are staying at home. Um, you also have the idea of, you know, potentially relaxing occupational licensing rules or, or particular things for rebuilding that, you know, we want to continue to have safe and innovative building efforts, but we also want to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, and then the other way we can think about it is, are there other types of regulations that are making it clearer for what's what we're able to do or not? Or are they making it harder for us to determine what is kind of feasible activities? And so that idea of policy adding noise to an already uncertain situation is something we can look at too. So, you know, one of the things that was really difficult to know was what exactly were essential activities versus non-essential. Um, how do we, did we, do we think that we count as an essential worker or not? And so some of the rules that, you know, maybe weren't as clear or they could change from, from state to state or they were made with that and then had to be adjusted later actually kind of had more noise where people thought they weren't allowed to do certain activities. Um, and so that could potentially also uh, kind of blunt the efforts of recovery because people are waiting for a clearer picture. So any of these regulations that can potentially just free up a little bit of that uncertainty, I think matter quite a bit. Well, thank you very much for coming on and, and talk about this with us. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Thank you so much. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.